Welcome to the Dear Dyslexic podcast series. I'm your host, Shay Wassell. For those of you who are new to the series, welcome. And for those of you returning, thanks for tuning back in. Today I'm excited to have in the studio to speak with me, a mentor of mine who has been a significant supporter, not just to me, but of the Dear Dyslexic Foundation. She's a lifelong family friend, Christine McJuvelet. Chrissy, we speak a lot about success and struggles of having dyslexia on the show, and you have shared some of your journey in some videos we recorded for National Dyslexia Awareness Day. What has it been like sharing your story of having dyslexia? In my working life, particularly in teaching in the Diploma of Finance and Mortgage Broking, I've been very open about it to students because I've actually felt that it's been a real benefit for me to have that because if anyone's going to be struggling with their learning and they know that the teacher also you know, doesn't spell very well, doesn't write very well, it puts them at ease. So in that context, it's been really, really easy. However... Um, the idea of um, going out into the corporate world and saying, I've got dyslexia, it feels completely different. Um, there can be prejudices uh, against dyslexia. Uh, Organisations can fear that it could um, really wreck their reputation by employing someone who um, has dyslexia. And... I don't think that uh, people realise the phenomenal benefits that um, people with dyslexia actually bring uh, to certain roles. So often in that area, I won't mention it, but I will say, look, I'm going to need some help editing my work. I need someone really good to make sure the spelling's right and that you're happy with the order of things. Uh, I don't say I'm dyslexic and therefore I need it. Um, so I suppose all my life I've just worked around um, you know, the problems and just solved the problems but haven't so much said the name of it, apart from when I'm teaching. And how have people reacted when you've said you've needed that bit of support? Well, in my current role, uh, they were terrific. I just stated it as a matter of fact. And in my current role, I'm a subject matter expert. Um, so it was just something I, I said that was required. It's like one of my idiosyncrasies. And um, they've, they've known me for 10 years, so they knew you know, what I was like, my good points and my bad points. So in um, your video on National Dyslexia Awareness Day, you spoke about some of the daily challenges for you. Can you share with us what some of those challenges are and how you manage them day to day? There's really been a history to daily challenges and it changes because I'm now in my 60s. Um, the challenges that I face are different to the challenges when I was younger. Some of those younger day challenges were absolutely um, impossible to, uh, to stand up and meet. However, you develop all sorts of tactics and the way that I've really been able to meet challenges is I think number one, having a phenomenal self-belief which has come from a mum who has had a f you know phenomenal belief in me and sees people as individuals. And um, I think that belief has been the main thing that's driven me uh, you know, to success. Um, I've 
run and operated businesses. Um, I've believed in me. I've believed that I could do it. And I think that's probably the biggest thing. But if you were to have a look at my work, you'd probably have a bit of a giggle because, you know, I'll spell words different ways in the hope that, you know, I'll get the right word sooner or later, the right spelling. Um, I still need to hang on to um, written words with my fingers to try and uh, check them and uh, keep them going. The tire, you know, the more tired you get, the harder it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, um, and I also, I have to work longer hours um, to have similar output uh, to my peers. When I went to teacher's college, I didn't know I had dyslexia. We didn't know anything about dyslexia when I was growing up. And um, I had to work till one or two o'clock in the morning, plus get extensions, um, deadlines for, for my assessments. And other people were just, you know, doing an essay the night before. <laughs> but I had things on tape. Um, which really helped. I used to listen to tape recordings. Because my handwriting was so very bad, I'd read my notes out as soon as the class finished and I'd go and um, record them and everyone thought I was very diligent, but it was the only way I would be able to reread my notes um, and I would listen to those when I went to bed at one o'clock in the morning. I'd pop on my headphones and be listening to my tapes as I went to sleep. I'd listen to them when I was driving my car um, those sorts of things, you know, I found quite useful. Wow, you must really have wanted to be a teacher. Oh, Most people would have given up. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of effort well, to go through. Well, I just, I really felt that the education system had let me down. I knew that I was very intelligent. Uh, once again, again, going back to a good mum who reinforced that. I don't know where I would have been without that sort of reinforcement. But um, I knew that I was intelligent. I knew I was a really good learner, but I knew that I also had problems learning. And I felt that if I taught, then I might be able to help um, kids who are having troubles, you know, have a better chance of learning. And, yeah, so I I was desperate. And I had started my first teaching job when I was 14 years old. And I taught swimming in the city baths when a coach caught me um, teaching my mum. And after the session, he asked if I'd like to work for him. So that was really nice. I had taught. I loved teaching. And I wanted to become a proper teacher because I thought there were these amazing secrets um, that uh, lay in understanding of early childhood, that lay in the understanding of the brain. And I was working as a volunteer at St Paul's uh, School for the Blind with the multiply disabled uh, children, uh, with Paul Quilligan, the principal there. And um, I just thought there were codes that could be cracked and great insights to be learnt. And I must admit... um, I was disappointed to find that there isn't all this magic behind it. And understanding is useful, but it's not magic anyway. (laughs) What was life like growing up for school, during your school years? What was it like? Well, up until grade three, it was pretty good. Um, I was very, very social. Um, I had huge amounts of empathy. I made friends very quickly. 
um, your teachers were nice and um, it was very social. About grade three, four, um, it all started to go very, very sour. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't concentrate on the tasks. Um, I was a talker and a fidgeter, which upset teachers. I desperately wanted to please, but I couldn't remember the instructions. I couldn't follow the instructions. And when it came to things like reading, it was just so hard because I'd, I'd get my finger and push it hard underneath the letters that we were looking at to read the words. And all the rest of the class by this stage were reading quite comfortably. And I came from a reading household. We had torture every Sunday morning where we had to sit for an hour and read a book. And I just wanted to be out and climbing a tree or running through the river. <laughs> and um, But my mum loved reading. My sister loved reading. You know, she started school having read Enid Blyton and she could knit and crochet <laughs> and went to school and thought the teachers were really dumb because they're going at Berku and they didn't know how to read. Um, I was totally the opposite and all those little letters, they, they look the same and with my eyes, I can't, I have a lot of trouble telling the difference between a C or an O or an E or an S. Um, all those little letters are really hard to work out and then I'd have to sound them and I'd have to guess which one I thought it was and then I would sound it and then I'd have to work out the next little letter next to it and go through that whole process again. By the time I figured out what I thought the second one was, I'd forgotten what the first one was. And so it was very hard to get um, a string of letters to actually come up with a word. And my mum was really patient. She taught me phonics. She worked really hard. But the problem was I just couldn't really see it and get it. And in grade three and four, you're expected to know your times table. Mm. Um, that was sheer hell. And my mum and I would sit up and she had all of these tables on the wall. I think it was from my one to my 12 times table and they were huge. And we would try chanting them, singing them. Mum would point at them. And then she would ask me a really simple one like, what's two times two? And I had the tables in front of me. I did not know what two times two was. There were lots of twos everywhere and I just I just couldn't do it. And we would stop uh, when both of us were crying that much that we couldn't go on and it would happen night after night. And mum was in incredibly encouraging and she believed that I would, you know, finally get it. And I did when I was at Teachers College. I learnt my tables and I was so proud. Um, I could learn to recite them, but even now I much prefer to have a calculator. And I work in financial services, which is really quite funny, but mm. I learned that I didn't have to be good at maths because my computer or my calculator was fantastic at it. So that was very, very beneficial for me. That's a great aid. <laughs> It's a very useful tool, isn't it? Yes, that's right. But I, I think too with the, with the connection of school, of, of what's expected of you, 
that a lot of your behaviour can be considered to be just bad behaviour. And because I couldn't fit into the classroom, I would just go off into my own little world outside of the classroom and I'd look out the window and things like that. And I can remember of a night time being in bed and just thinking to myself, I just wish I could die. If only I could just die, it would make it okay. And maybe I could get born again and we could start all over fresh and I could be a good girl in the classroom. And, you know, even today, I feel really sad for that little girl back then. And, sorry, (laughs) I am incredibly resilient and... You know, depression is one of those things. I think with dyslexic people, I'm not the only one that, you know, uh, grapples uh, with that from time to time. And the stress on a very young child, the phenomenal stress of not achieving, knowing that there are clever people around you. And I didn't begrudge them. I was in total awe of them. You know, there was a little girl, Jackie, in my classroom and she was just gorgeous in every way. She had the neatest ponytail I'd ever seen. She had <laughs> blonde hair and I'm dark haired. And she wrote with such beautiful, clear handwriting and she could draw and she could colour in. And I sat with her for hours with her trying to teach me how to colour in. And all I could do was scribble across, trying to stay inside the lines. And I'd work and work and work. And sometimes I'd scrape a hole in the page. And then I'd go outside the lines. I couldn't get it even. But I just thought she was so remarkable. And I would have loved to have been like that. And I think it would be great for teachers to know that kids that aren't achieving... It's not necessarily because they don't want to achieve. You know, they just might not be able to do it just yet. And that's what the foundation's all about, is trying to raise that awareness. And the guests we had on the show today, we were talking a lot about mental health and the impact that dyslexia has and the lack of awareness and understanding that people have around um, the fact that it does cause quite severe mental health problems and the fact that we can't be quite like our peers no matter how hard we try and no matter how much we want to be like everybody else, we're not quite like everybody else no matter how hard we colour in or no matter how many hours we spend on our times tables or read those books or practise our spelling and wrote learn day in, day out the next day we might still forget how to spell that word that we practiced and got perfect the night before and people don't understand and they get frustrated and frustrated and like I say to my boss you might be frustrated with me but don't you think I'm 10 times more frustrated at myself that I can't be just like everybody else. That's so true that's very very true but being forever the optimist Um, As a matter of fact, my daughter once said, Mum, I have to be a pessimist because you're such an optimist, I have to balance you out. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I think being dyslexic has helped me phenomenally in so many respects and has given me uh, greater joy in my life than I think uh, I would have had uh, if if I was, say, you know, my sister. Um, because of the 
phenomenal empathy and desire to understand learning, um, it gave me the opportunity to teach. And when I taught swimming, I thought, wow, this is fantastic because there wasn't anyone that I came across that I couldn't teach to swim. And I wanted everyone who came to me to know that they were a great learner. And I loved it when I got kids whose parents would tell me they're not good in school and they're always in trouble. And, you know, I'd be able to say to these kids, you are a great learner. And because of all of the kinesthetic stuff involved in, in swimming, I was a very big believer in kinesthetic learning as well as the other learning styles. But seeing kids who were constantly in trouble and not good at something um, learn how to swim was fantastic. And then I developed a um, method of teaching for babies. And I don't think I could have done that unless I was dyslexic because I was able to stand back, listen, look and feel with my hands what that little baby was telling me without any language. And so I was able to tell by the tension in the muscles, uh, the relaxation in the muscles, the smile on the face, the, the look in the eye. I was able to let them teach me what worked for them best in the water and that was really a very exciting time because the the predominant method of teaching uh, infants at that time was um, pretty rugged they called it drown proofing and lots of kids didn't want to swim after that because they'd been drown proofed fair enough it was almost <laughs> swimming proofed <laughs> and so that was a, a great advantage for me and I, I think one of the other things that being dyslexic has uh, done for me is it's I've seen opportunities and where other kids wouldn't be necessarily thinking about that like in, in grade four I saw a wonderful opportunity because because of my empathy and I heard about the kids at Sutherland Homes and they were Aboriginal kids and they'd been told that their parents were no good and couldn't look after them and they were made wards of the state. And that was sad enough, but to add on top of that, they were told it didn't matter how well they were doing in high school. And I remember one girl at my school, uh, she was fantastic um, in, which sport was she in? I can't remember now. It might have been high jump or long jump, but one of the athletics. She was absolutely fantastic. And uh, she could have gone on with a career there if she'd been able to stay in the school system. But she couldn't because when they were 15 years old, they had to leave school. They weren't allowed to continue. Mm. And when I came home and was telling my mum about this dreadful situation, I said, I have to get some money to give these kids so they can keep going to school. And we just discovered a couple of organisations, SAF and ABSCOL. My mum was great. She took me to the meeting, to their annual meetings, and I could listen to them and ask questions, which she encouraged me to do. There were no other children there. None of my peers were there. But my mum looked for opportunities for me where I could succeed and followed things I was interested in. And so I was able to raise a lot of money by doing bob a job you know destroying people's rose bushes and <laughs> hanging up their washing incorrectly and putting the wrong color <laughs> shoe polish on that sort of thing and I did that from all of grade four five and six and I think 
I don't think I would have done that um, and, unless I had my brain and the way it works. And I've had other great, you know, opportunities too that I don't think I would have run swim schools for 27 years. You know, I don't think as a 14-year-old I would have said to my new boss, how do you get a business like that? And he told me. And so I just went off and did it because yeah. I was very simplistic. And I think it's opened up, you know, opportunity. So it doesn't have to be all sad um, being dyslexic. But I could imagine if I didn't have that support um, of my mum, my dad wasn't supportive, so I dropped him. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but without that support, you know, you, you look at the statistics mm. and we've got so many kids um, overrepresented in the juvenile system and they'd be kids who didn't have a mum like mine and I was so lucky to be born into that family uh, because what you get told by teachers, um, you know, throughout your life would have you believing that you're just, you know, a bit of an idiot, dumb, um, a time waster, you need to concentrate. Um, I managed to get through high school with only one teacher even knowing that I had any sort of problem. Even my mum doesn't think that I've got dyslexia because I've hidden things so well uh, from high school onwards where I just knew how to get people off my back. And so I, I just didn't hand work in. And uh, only one teacher tweaked. So that was really good. So I just kept away from her. She tried to help and then I kept away from her. And I had a nice social life and went off to work and destroyed the places that I worked at. <laughs> <laughs> we had one interviewee who said she learnt just to be a really good liar. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. she learnt to just cover things up and to lie. Yeah. yeah, well, I'd so tell the truth. No, I didn't do it. I didn't so, bring it. No, people, yeah, people just have lots of different strategies, different don't ways they? Of, that's right. Yeah, different ways to manage of things. Yeah, I think I use my personality uh, to get away with stuff. And yeah. I thought, well, if people, you know, think I'm lazy, well, I'll let them think that. I suppose that's a form of lying, isn't it? Well, I just had my mum. Well, she, as everyone who's heard my podcast before, knows she'd proofread everything. So she would edit everything. Mm. So we just put different strategies in place. Right. Well, I wouldn't do put pen to paper. So, But there's a fine balance, isn't there? Because there are a lot of strengths that people bring to the table when they're dyslexic. I mean, we're very mm. resilient. We think outside the box. But it's that fine balance of making sure we have positive things to keep our mental health, to keep us resilient. That's right. And I think recognising it, you know, when you're starting um, to get down, um, recognising it and doing something about it is useful. And, and just having the courage to go on day after day and make sure you do all the things you've got to do rather than having it totally overwhelm you. So in your 60s now, Chrissy, and you're becoming an advocate for yes. dyslexia, you know, uh, the board, the chair now of the board of the Dear Dyslexic Foundation. How do you feel now being in a role where you're advocating very strongly and very passionately in a space that you haven't really been in before? Well, I'm incredibly honoured uh, to be part of uh, Dear Dyslexic and I think that we people with dyslexia who have managed to carve out um, a good life for themselves, we really owe it uh, back to help um, other people with dyslexia, particularly in the workplace. 
um, as well as, you know, the schools. There's more happening in the schools now, which is brilliant. Um, but in TAFE and uni, I was doing early childhood, primary and PE, and nobody picked up that I was dyslexic. I was given one hint by one teacher saying, use a pen that's easy to write with. And I thought, what on earth is she talking about? <laughs> you know, ink comes out of all of them. <laughs> and it's, there was, it would have been great to have actually had a, a diagnosis. And then I would have realised that, you know, staying up to one o'clock in the morning, you know, wasn't uh, absurd. Um, and needing extra time for my, you know, assessments. Teachers were thinking and lecturers were thinking it was because I'd put my work off for too long. Mm. Um, And now I know what I know, um, I can see that 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 was quite an okay uh, learning uh, path for me and I managed to learn. I came out in the top 8% of the state and my dad said, see, I told you if you tried you could do it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> so I think with with being on the board, uh, especially being in Australia, we're so far behind the UK. Our universities don't really seem to know much about it. I know La Trobe Uni and a few of the others are doing some good stuff where you can go and get diagnosed. That's a start. But there's nothing in place to help people through it. And it is nice to know that, you know, that that's what it is. That's what's wrong. But we need to be... um, getting a lot greater awareness so that we can implement programs you know I would dearly love to teach in the um, sector helping support people through uh, university and helping them achieve uh, their goals Uh, in the workplaces when I went to work my first job was with Gill and Durham and Co and they were stockbreakers and the poor things um, employing me at $17 a week my mum thought I was being ripped off but I kept thinking when are they going to fire me (laughs) because I just did everything wrong and you know they they were wonderful wonderful people Uh, but I, I felt so bad about you know breaking the switchboard when Poseidon was going crazy and um, mucking up the mail, you know, opening up letters that had already been franked, um, spilling coffee on very important papers, you know, dropping the directors. I had seven directors and I would regularly drop their lunches and just pick them up and put them back together because I couldn't, you know, tell them that I (laughs) fell over again. And um, it, it, it was really... Um, sad for them having me in the workplace. I had, I was loved. I was very wildly, uh, widely loved. But I, I tried to really make up for it and asked to take home some work so that I could produce my, you know, increase my productivity. And um, I took home all of these articles in papers that I had to cut out and paste onto bits of paper and then file them. And my alphabet wasn't very good, so the filing never worked out correctly. Mm-hmm. And where the star was, I would cut out that article, but he'd meant it to be 
um, the article next to where the star was. And so my instructions weren't that clear in my head. I cut out the <laughs> bit that had the mark on it. So I had all of the wrong articles chopped out and filed into the wrong uh, file while I was working so hard to try and be productive for them. So... There were lots of good things um, that I did for them. I had a lovely speaking voice. I was very good with clients. Um, the reception work was uh, very good, apart from when I was breaking the telephones. <laughs> uh, but when I did the other other work, it was you know fraught with problems. So I don't know. I, I feel fearful for people going into the workforce particularly if they've had hidden dyslexia and they mightn't have any skills or any ability to tell people what their problem is or any way for employers to find out how they can get the best benefit out of these people because um, they do bring terrific benefit if they're, you know, um, understood and pointed in the right direction. <laughs> so I think as, as a... Um, a board member of Dear Dyslexic, I think I have the opportunity to be able to speak to industry, um, speak to the leaders um, within education, in the higher education realm in particular, and get things at a better level so that we can at least be kind of equivalent to the UK. And then once we've done that, we'll absolutely slam dunk it and have the best opportunities in Australia for you know people with dyslexia. Are there any take-home messages you'd like our audience to hear before we finish today for young people or adults that have heard your story? Yeah, I think you've really got to believe in yourself and try and surround yourself with people who think you're good and who think you're okay. Um, try and make sure that uh, the negative stuff that's being fed to you, that you bounce that back, um, try and bounce that off you, deflect it somehow and say, you know what, I'm very intelligent, I'm a great learner. Uh, before you got into the school system, you have a look back and see how much you learnt all by yourself without the education area helping you. You know, you learn to language, you learn to walk and talk, you learn to empathy for people. There are so many things. What an amazing learner uh, we are when we're little. And then... If you've got dyslexia and you hit uh, the school system, the, often the methods and the ways that you're given to learn and the time frame that you're expected to learn in um, might not suit you, but it doesn't mean that you're dumb. It doesn't mean that you're not going to become a scientist or whatever area of uh, interest that you have. Uh, you can achieve whatever you want to achieve uh, and you need to believe in yourself so I think that's probably uh, the biggest take home and try and keep away from bad influences because you can have really good fun with naughty people and <laughs> you know that can be far more rewarding um, uh, for you but you can so easily because for for us as a, a, a subgroup of people people with dyslexia as I mentioned before, it's very easy for us to get into trouble. We've got often very good imaginations. We can delight the socks off naughty people and um, it could take us in the wrong direction. So I think try and um, 
get really good goals, solve great problems and be the best person that you can be. Well, thank you so much, Chrissy, for that delightful podcast. You've shared so many wonderful things with us. Thank you so much, Shay. It's been a pleasure. If you'd like to hear more about Chrissy's amazing story or more about her business, you can go to the Dear Dyslexic website to find out more at deardyslexic.com. Also, if you haven't already done so yet, make sure you sign up to our mailing list so you can keep up to date with all the work that we are doing at the Foundation. Head to deardyslexic.com. And don't forget, if there's anything you've heard today that you've found distressing, you can contact Beyond Blue, 1300 224636 or Lifeline 13 11 14. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.